Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Study at the world's only film school dedicated entirely to comedy. The Harold Ramis Film School at the Second City Training Center is looking for diverse applicants of all experience, levels, and backgrounds. Apply by May 15th for the year-long program starting this fall in Chicago. Go to RamisFilmSchool.com or call 312-883-1241 to schedule a tour or to attend their next open house. If I had had that, I would have gone there. I'm just saying, I would have gone there. So I would encourage you to be like the hypothetical me. Harold Ramis, film school. How cool is that? From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. My name is Michael Ian Black, and oh, the joys I am feeling today. The joys. I'll tell you why. It's a rainy day here in the wilds of Connecticut, my favorite kind of day, because the rain is basically saying to you, it's okay, Michael, you don't have to do anything today. That's well, that's what it's saying to me. Michael, it's raining. You can't be expected to do anything. And so I listen to that voice, and I haven't done a goddamn thing today. Strictly speaking, that's not true. Here's what I've been doing. And if any of you are cops out there, let me tell you something. You better turn this off because... You're going to, I'm going to end up incriminating myself and I don't want the fuzz showing up at my door because I've been doing some highly illegal things today. What, Michael, what have you been doing? That's so illegal. I have been playing online poker and here in the United States of this America, American poker players are not allowed to play online poker, but there's one site that does for whatever reason, let you play here in America. So that's what I've been doing. Not a, not a lot of money, but um, what I've been trying to do, because I've had a little downtime, is get better at 
poker. It has long been a hobby of mine, many, many years of playing poker and being at best mediocre. And what's really hard is playing online. Any poker player will tell you online poker is incredibly hard to beat for various reasons. But so I decided, well, I'm going to beat it once and for all. I'm just going to I'm just going to beat poker. So that's what I've been trying to do. And so far, uh, I've beat it. So you can't beat poker, guys. Let's just let's just be honest here. You can't beat poker. And, and And that's look, all of life is a gamble, right? We all get dealt our cards. We play them the best that we can. A lot of times we don't have a strategy going into it. We just look at our cards and we say, these are terrible cards that fate has dealt me. And what am I supposed to do with that? And well, a lot of the subtext of the relationship between Jude and Sue, and not even the subtext, just the text, really, because Sue said it, has been about how they are a cursed family these kissing cousins, they are a cursed family who cannot seem to pick the correct romantic partners. There's just something in their blood that spoils their love lives. So Sue and Phillotson are about to get married in Melchester. Sue has showed up. She's been staying at Jude's apartment. Phillotson has showed up. It's the day of the wedding. Phillotson ran into Jude and Sue, kind of strolling arm in arm after they'd been to the church. And Sue had pulled one of her classic run around Sue moves. And so here we are. <clears throat> Jude went to go get a gift for, for them. And now we're picking it up. Jude soon joined them at his rooms. And shortly after they prepared for the ceremony, Phillotson's hair was brushed to a painful extent and his shirt collar appeared stiffer than it had been for the previous 20 years. Beyond this, he looked dignified and thoughtful, and altogether a man of whom it was not unsafe to predict that he would make a kind and considerate husband. That he adored Sue was obvious, and she could almost be seen to feel that she was undeserving his adoration. Although the distance was so short, he had hired a fly from the Red Lion, and six or seven women and children had gathered by the door when they came out. The schoolmaster and Sue were unknown, though Jude was getting to be recognized as a citizen, and the couple were judged to be some relations of his from a distance, nobody supposing Sue to have been a recent pupil at the training school. So I guess a fly's like a limo, and uh, yeah, it's like a whip, you know? To getting into their whip. My son made fun of me yesterday for, he said, because I was trying to talk like a teenager, like I was trying to talk young. What a dick he is. You know what I said? I was talking about self-driving cars. I think I said uh, about self-driving cars, something like, bitch, why are you trying to be driving yourself? Like that. And he just looked at me askance and made fun of me. And I was being funny. In the carriage, Jude took from his pocket his extra little wedding present, which turned out to be two or three yards of white toile, which he, which he threw over her bonnet and all as a veil. It looks so odd over a bonnet, she said. I'll take the bonnet off. Oh, no, let it stay, said Phillotson, and she obeyed. Well... Those three little words are quite something, aren't they? And she obeyed. Sometimes Hardy can just drop 
drop a little IED right there in the fertile soil of the text to let you know what's what. Sue is obeying Phillotson. And of course, the vows that they took back then is that you you vow to obey your husband. And so that's what she's doing. And she is not one to obey, as we know. And so the little IED has been planted there in the fertile text, and it's going to blow up. When they had passed up the church and were standing in their places, Jude found that the antecedent visit had certainly taken off the edge of this performance. But by the time they were halfway on with the service, he wished from his heart that he had not undertaken the business of giving her away. How could Sue have had the temerity to ask him to do it? A cruelty possibly to herself as well as to him. Women were different from men in such matters. Was it that they were, instead of more sensitive as reputed, more callous and less romantic, or were they more heroic? Or was Sue simply so perverse that she willfully gave herself and him pain for the odd and mournful luxury of practicing long-suffering in her own person and of being touched with tender pity for him at having made him practice it? Yes, that's exactly right, Thomas Hardy! He gets it! I mean, he created it, so of course he gets it. But this is the thing I love about Thomas Hardy, and I wouldn't have known this before I started reading Jude the Obscure, having never read any Thomas Hardy previously, except for a few pages of Tess of the Durbervilles when I was in 10th grade, uh, because it was assigned to us, but I quickly gave that up and cheated. But here's what I love about Thomas Hardy. He is able to articulate the kind of uh, weird and woozy emotions that we all seem to possess. Those feelings, those disquieting sensations that none of us can quite name. He somehow puts words to them. So he says this so well. It was simply, was Sue simply so perverse that she willfully gave herself and him pain for the odd and mournful luxury of practicing long suffering in her own person and of being touched with tender pity for him at having made him practice it. It's these complicated human muddy emotions that he manages to articulate so well. So you go, well, why, why is Thomas Hardy considered a genius? This is why, guys. This is why. He gives voice to emotions that have no word. I mean, the Germans must have words for this. But in English, we do not. We don't have words to uh, describe every little twinge of disquieting emotion. And that's what Thomas Hardy does. He gives, he gives us those words. And I'm going to give myself a break, I guess. We will be back in a moment on Obscure. Back on Obscure, and I'm still feeling pretty high on the book right now, so let's continue. He could perceive that her face was nervously set. And when they reached the trying ordeal of Jude giving her to Phillotson, she could hardly command herself. Rather, however, as it seemed from her knowledge of what her cousin must feel, whom she need not have had there at all, then from self-consideration. Possibly she would go on inflicting such pains again and again, and grieving for the sufferer again and again in all her colossal inconsistency. 
Again, just genius shit coming out of Thomas Hardy's pen. Just genius shit. Acknowledging both that she is causing the suffering, but also acknowledging, taking the next step, that she is capable of grieving for the sufferer. So in, in a sense, by inflicting pain on others, she's inflicting pain on herself and does it knowingly again and again and again. Why? So when we talk about her running Jude through the spanking machine, in a very real way, Thomas Hardy is saying she's also running herself through the spanking machine. Just everybody's getting spank, 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 spank. Everybody's walking away from their relations with Sue Bridehead with a red and sore bottom. So I guess the I guess the wedding's going on. I guess they're just getting married. Phillotson seemed not to notice, to be surrounded by a mist which prevented his seeing the emotions of others because he does not want to see. Phillotson's not an idiot. He knows exactly what's going on. He doesn't want to see it. As soon as they had signed their names and come away and the suspense was over, Jude felt relieved. The end. Well, of course, we know that's not the end. But now Sue and Phillotson are married and Jude is relieved because it's over. The meal at his lodging was a very simple affair. And at two o'clock, they went off. In crossing the pavement to the fly, she looked back and there was a frightened light in her eyes. Could it be that Sue had acted with such unusual foolishness as to plunge into she knew not what for the sake of asserting her independence of him, of retaliating on him for his secrecy? Perhaps Sue was thus venturesome with men because she was childishly ignorant of that side of their natures which wore out women's hearts and lives. I don't sure understand that. Was she childlessly ignorant of that side of their natures? Whose natures? Men or women's? I don't know. Well, was she retaliating on him for his secrecy? I think so, perhaps. Yes. She's so, um, she's so fragile in a way. She's emotionally fragile. And the way she combats her emotional fragility is to rebel and to act out and to thrash and to look for somebody to pin her arms to her sides because, well, for all the reasons that she said, she knows. Because, because she knows that she does not belong there. She does not belong in her environment, but she knows not where to turn. So she thrashes this way and that, looking for a way out. Phillotson is a way out. So she took it. When her foot was on the carriage step, she turned round, saying that she had forgotten something. Jude and the landlady offered to get it. No, she said, running back. It is my handkerchief. I know where I left it. Jude followed her back. She had found it and came holding, hold on, page, sometimes you get stuck, page, stuck, page stuck, holding it in her hand. She looked into his eyes with her own tearful ones, and her lips suddenly parted as if she were going to avow something. But she went on. And whatever she had meant to say remained unspoken. What could she have said, really? What was there to say? It was good of her to keep her mouth shut in that moment.
because the only thing she could have said is, I will always love you, Jude. And that would have crushed his heart, surely, as an anvil falling on the head of Wiley E. Coyote. So instead, mercifully, she got into the carriage and rode away. Chapter 8 Jude wondered if she had really left her handkerchief behind, or whether it were that she had miserably wished to tell him of a love that at the last moment she could not bring herself to express. He could not stay in his silent lodging when they were gone, and fearing that he might be tempted to drown his misery in alcohol, he went upstairs, changed his dark clothes for his white, his thin boots for his thick, and proceeded to his customary work for the afternoon. But in the cathedral, he seemed to hear a voice behind him, and to be possessed with an idea that she would come back. She could not possibly go home with Phillotson, he fancied. The feeling grew and stirred. The moment that the clock struck the last of his working hours, he threw down his tools and rushed homeward. Has anybody been for me? he asked. Nobody had been there. As he could claim the downstairs sitting room till twelve o'clock that night, he sat in it all the evening, and even when the clock had struck eleven and the family had retired, he could not shake off the feeling that she would come back and sleep in the little room adjoining his own, in which she had slept so many previous days. Her actions were always unpredictable. Why should she not come? Gladly would he have compounded for the denial of her as a sweetheart and wife by having her live thus as a fellow lodger and friend, even on the most distant terms. Well, we know that's not true, Jude. Come on, man. She she tried. She tried that. You tried that. You both tried that. You talked about that endlessly. Oh no, we'll just be friends. We're just, we'll, we'll just, we'll just, uh, you know, be acquaintances and we'll just kind of hang out very far from each other. And if we see each other in the streets, we shall uh, tip our hats to one another and say, good day. You've tried that and it didn't work. Just shut up with it. It's over. His supper still remained spread and going to the front door and softly setting it open he returned to the room and sat as watchers sit on old midsummer eves, expecting the phantom of the beloved. But she did not come. Having indulged in this wild hope, he went upstairs and looked out of the window and pictured her through the evening journey to London, whither she and Phillotson had gone for their holiday there rattling along through the damp night to their hotel, under the same sky of ribbed cloth as that he beheld, through which the moon showed its position rather than its shape and one or two of the larger stars made themselves visible as faint nebulae only. It was a new beginning of Sue's history. He projected his mind into the future and saw her with children more or less in her own likeness around her. But the consolation of regarding them as a continuation of her identity was denied to him as to all... I gotta sneeze. (sighs) Have I ever sneezed on a podcast before? I don't know. But it suggests a certain level of relaxation. 
to which I think we all aspire when recording our podcasts, don't we? We all wish to be in such a relaxed state that that a sneeze can come unbidden to our nostrils. I'll start that sentence again. He projected his mind uh, to the children, but the consolation of regarding them as a continuation of her identity was denied to him, as to all such dreamers, by the willfulness of nature in not allowing issue from one parent alone. Well, that's true. How much better would my kids be if they only had inherited me and, and none of Martha? Look, in my marriage, if we had had the ability to just clone me, and Martha can raise them as her mother, sure, that's not a problem. But if they, they just had my genetic stuff and none of hers, how much better would those children be? So much better. Every desired renewal of an existence is debased by being half alloy. I mean, again, that's just genius shit, right? Like you dream about your kid and you, and you dream about, you know, they're going to be just like you and you don't re, and you don't think about the fact that they're going to be half, you know, half your partner. I mean, you do, but you don't, you know, you think about your own genetic material kind of building up this kid, but half of it's going to be your partner as it should be, as it, as you want it to be. But you're, yeah, you're going to get you, it's going to be debased <laughs> by being half alloy. Now here's a quote. It says, if at the estrangement or death of my lost love, I could go and see her child, hers solely, there would be comfort in it, said Jude. And then he again uneasily saw, as he had latterly seen with more and more frequency, the scorn of nature for man's finer emotions and her lack of interest in his aspirations. So we're getting back to this unfeeling universe. I don't know if we're getting back to it, but 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 it's been kind of leading to this, right? This this idea that Christianity and by extension all of religion is something of a farce, and that the universe is just the universe is just the universe, and it really doesn't give a shit one way or the other about us. Which is which you know is my preferred way of thinking about things. It's better that way. It's better. That we exist uh, not in conjunction with some higher being, but only in conjunction with our fellow living creatures. That we spin the web that we spin, and we connect all the threads that we can through this one life. And when it is gone, they are dissolved into nothingness. I like that better. The oppressive strength of his affection for Sue showed itself on the morrow and following days yet more clearly. He could no longer endure the light of the Melchester lamps. The sunshine was as drab paint and the blue sky as zinc. Then he received news that his old aunt was dangerously ill at Marygreen which intelligence almost coincided with a letter from his former employer at Christminster, who offered him permanent work of a good class if he would come back. The letters were almost a relief to him. He started to visit Aunt Drusilla and resolved to go onward to Christminster to see what worth there might be in the builder's offer. Jude found his aunt even worse than the communication from the widow Edlin had led him to expect. There was every possibility of her lingering on for weeks or months, though little likelihood. 
he wrote to Sue informing her of the state of her aunt and suggesting that she might like to see her aged relative alive. Oh, well, this is a neat little literary contrivance, right? Well, how are they? how's he going to get Sue and Jude back together? Well, you kill Aunt Drusilla. She's just been sitting there lollygagging all this time anyway, right? She's just been sitting there in Mary Green. Kill her, you know? Have her grow dangerously ill. She could linger for weeks or months. I mean, Jude and Sue and, and Aunt Drusilla could all get together and, and reminisce about days gone by and talk about the family and all the hangings that took place and all the terrible tragedies that befell the Fowleys. And it could be a grand old time. So he wrote to her, right? Uh, he would meet her at Alfredston Road the following evening, Monday, on his way back from Christminster, if she could come by the up train which crossed the down train at that station. Next morning, accordingly, he went on to Christminster, intending to return to Alfredston soon enough to keep the suggested appointment with Sue. The city of learning, meaning uh, Christminster, wore an estranged look, and he had lost all feeling for its associations. Yet, as the sun made vivid lights and shades of the mullioned architecture of the facades, and drew patterns of the crinkled battlements on the young turf of the quadrangles, Jude thought he had never seen the place look so beautiful. He came to the street in which he had first beheld Sue, the chair she had occupied when, leaning over her ecclesiastical scrolls, a hog-hair brush in her hand, her girlish figure had arrested the gaze of his inquiring eyes, stood precisely in its former spot, empty. It was as if she were dead, (laughs) and nobody had been found capable of succeeding her in that artistic pursuit. Hers was now the city phantom, while those of the intellectual and devotional worthies who had once moved him to emotion were no longer able to assert their presence there. So he has gone from a life totally of the mind, now he is living a life totally of the heart, And such a fate may we all endure, right? I mean, the the mind, wonderful, fabulous, but the heart, even better. I'm more of a mind person. You probably surmise that. But I have a a big heart, guys. I mean, you know of my love for my dog, Jack-Jack, who couldn't be with us here today. Because he's out in the rain somewhere. I don't know where the fuck he is. But you know how much... I care for him. I have a big heart. However, here he was. And in fulfillment of his intention, he went on to his former lodging in Beersheba, near the ritualistic church of St. Silas. The old landlady who opened the door seemed glad to see him again, and bringing some lunch informed him that the builder who had employed him had called to inquire his address. Jude went on to the stone yard where he had worked, but the old sheds and bankers were distasteful to him. He felt it impossible to engage himself to return and stay in this place of vanished dreams. He longed for the hour of the homeward train to Alfredston, where he might probably meet Sue. All right, well, I mean... Who knows? I mean, that's exciting. Let's pause here. Keep us all on our toes. Back in a minute on Obscure.
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back. Are you ready to find out if Sue and Jude finally reunite? Will she be changed now that she is married? Who knows? That's why we read the book, to find these things out. Let's go on. Then for one ghastly half hour of depression caused by these scenes, there returned upon him that feeling which had been his undoing more than once, that he was not worth the trouble of being taken care of either by himself or others. And during this half hour, he met Tinker Taylor. Ooh, who's Tinker Taylor? Well, we're about to find out. The bankrupt ecclesiastical ironmonger. At four ways. Oh, I think Tinker Taylor's one of those uh, barflies that we met who proposed that they should adjourn to a bar and drink together. Oh, you guys, we know. We know what happens when Jude takes to the drink. He becomes a fool and starts reciting Latin. Oh, I can't bear to see him reciting Latin again. Oh, he makes such a fool of himself when he proves his fluency in the dead language. Oh, no. They walked along the street till they stood before one of the great palpitating centers of Christminster life, the inn wherein he formally had responded to the challenge to rehearse the creed in Latin. Yes, you remember how awful that was. What an awful scene. Those boys challenged him to, to, to recite the creed in Latin, and he did it. How embarrassing. Now a popular tavern with a spacious and inviting entrance, which gave admittance to a bar that had been entirely renovated and refitted in modern style since Jude's residence here. So it had a, it had a little redo. Well, that's nice. Tinker Taylor drank off his glass and departed, saying it was too stylish a place now for him to feel at home in, unless he was drunker than he had money to be just then. Jude was longer finishing his, and stood abstractedly silent in the, for the minute, almost empty place. The bar had been gutted and newly arranged throughout. 
mahogany fixtures having taken the place of the old painted ones, while at the back of the standing space there were stuffed sofa benches. The room was divided into compartments in the approved manner, between which were screens of ground glass in mahogany framing, to prevent topers in one compartment being put to the blush by the recognitions of those in the next. On the inside of the counter, two bardmaids leant over the white-handled beer engines and the row of little silvered taps inside, dripping into a pewter trough. So the whole place has been redone. Why is he lingering on the descriptions of this place? Because I suspect a multitude of reasons. First of all, money is coming to Christminster. That seat of learning has been chugging along to a capitalist engine. And the new money flowing into Christminster is being felt in the taverns and drinking holes there. The culture is changing. And so it is now the studious and learned who receive a pretty coin for their wares, as opposed to the brawny and strong who plowed the fields before. Now it's it's the smarty pants who are inheriting the earth, the meek as it were. And Jude, he of brawn and of brain, knows not where he belongs. So he can kind of straddle these two worlds. The town has changed. He has changed. His mood has changed. His circumstances have changed. Can he remain there? He says no. He says no. We'll Sue meet him at the station. We do not know. We'll run around Sue, run around back to him. We do not know. What will happen to Drusilla? She will die. That we do know. That old crone, I think, has finally met her match in in father time. She will die. But what will the reunion between Sue and Jude be like? Standing around her deathbed, watching her shriveled little corpse turn to dust. What will happen? I don't know. I don't know. But the story does plot along, doesn't it? It is moving forward, step by step, by step, leading to some inevitable conclusion, which will hopefully feature a death, hopefully multiple, hopefully a suicide. What I'm looking for now is a double murder-suicide. Last episode, I was looking for somebody to stop the wedding. This episode, I'm looking for the whole thing to end with a double murder-suicide. And if there's any less than that, I will be disappointed. So we don't know. We'll see. Will Sue show up at the station? Will Drusilla make it through the night? Will Jude even make it from Christminster? Or will he find himself once again drowned in the alcohols? Who knows? But this book has a mind of its own. It's just going on whether we want it to or not. Bitch, why are you even driving yourself? That's what's going on with this book. Driving itself. And we're just along for the ride. So until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure is brought to you by Earwolf. For more information on Obscure, visit our show page at Earwolf.com and be sure to subscribe to Obscure in your favorite podcast app like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts so you don't miss an episode. I was going to say a thrilling episode, but I'm, I'm humble. If you like what you've heard, please... 
Write us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Obscure is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited today's show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor if you would like information about sponsoring our show. And you would. Email hello at midroll.com from the wilds of Connecticut. I'm Michael Ian Black. This is Tony Rodriguez. This is Carlos Santos. This is Riza Licea. And this is Oscar Montoya. When our powers combine, we are Spanish Aquí Presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf, bringing you the best of the best of lo mejor of the Latinx comedy. Join us every Tuesday as we chat about what's going on in our lives, Latinx culture, and ¿qué es lo que? Lo que no está picando. Lo que te pica. Don't worry, we'll tell you what that means if you listen. We'll also be joined by a new guest every single week. We'll get to know a little bit more about their lives. Every single week. Uh-huh. And then we'll make them sit back and watch us improvise their lives right back to them. Improvisation. <laughs> Spanish Aki Presents premieres July 16th. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Hola, Nesea. Spanish Aki Presents. <laughs>